Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast ready to sacrifice whatever credibility it had remaining. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. Uh, joining us for the first time in a while, we have councillor Luke John Davis. Hello, LJ. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. It, yes, been a while. I think it's the first time since your glorious election, isn't it? Yeah, possibly. Are we, are we going to tell the, the listeners about how we're waiting for you to become the president after that? My team for the count uh, was Corey plus John Cotton, who then became leader of Birmingham City Council, and Sarah Edwards, who became the MP for Tamworth. So we're, we're all waiting for Corey to top those two. Well, I mean, the Iowa caucuses are on Monday, so I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, God, they're not, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. A late oh. draft. No, I haven't incited an insurrection, don't have any federal indictments. I, I realise that might play against me with the Republican electorate. So, in lieu of the quiz, which uh, was uh, cancelled due to reasons of um, too many of our members running cities, um, we decided that we're going to have essentially a predictathon. So, this uh, this episode is one big, long predictions round trying to work out what's going to happen this year in British politics, because an election has to be called at some point in 2024. So essentially, listeners, if you're already bored of election speculation, then just ignore this podcast, because this is the only place we're going to do the speculating, and then we'll talk about other bits of politics in other episodes. For those of you who do want to listen to a bunch of men speculate about what might happen with no evidence whatsoever, come and join us. Was that introduction downbeat enough? <laughs> I think it was the first some research. I have some evidence. <laughs> When do you think the election will be? The working assumption, which is a very interesting phrase because it doesn't actually rule anything in or out for Rishi Sunak is the second half of the year, which means you're looking at, I've got down one of five potential dates and I have not been able to basically pick one of those five dates. I had four dates and then George Osborne said that a little bird told him that it was going to be the 14th of November, which wasn't one of the four dates I had down. I'm going to essentially dismiss that because the reasoning for that is if you if it's the 14th of November, Sunak would have to recall Parliament in the middle of the conference season in that recess in order to do it. So the four possibles that I've got down are the 21st of November, which would be if he rec- if he called the election as soon as Parliament gets back from conference, 28th of November, 5th of December or 12th of December, which basically goes through that time period. I don't think they're going to push it into the 19th of December because then you're, you're basically into Christmas and as if the whole country didn't already hate him, they they would if he did that. The problem with the 12th of December is it means calling an election the day after the American presidential election, probably when the votes are still being counted. We may not even have a result, um, but that is, I think, the last date he can go within 2024. I'm going to go with the 28th of November, mostly arbitrarily, um, but I think it's going to be one of those four, and I'm going to pick the 28th because that gives him a week when he gets back from conference to get his ducks in a row and get his troops in line and then 
go for the hills. So, yeah, ruling out Boxing Day election as well, which I, I think would be <laughs> very fun for all of us, wouldn't it? So, um, please, God, no. <laughs> I, I think I, I agree with LJ quite a bit in terms of like the the timing around the later the later part of the year is very difficult. Um, if you do kind of go go for that sort of area, I think pretty much anything in December for the most part is just going to be out the window. The minute the minute that Wham's Last Christmas starts uh, playing, people are going to be really annoyed if they're having to deal with an election at the same time as that. Um, November, as LJ's kind of outlined, is just the timing around a lot of these things is just going to be very, very tight, which leads me to kind of think that actually that second part of the year if we do have an election then it's not going to be the late part of the year i think it's going to be more likely to be the uh, the earlier bit of it so if we kind of continue like that sort of uh, that sort of logic october i'm not convinced is 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 a going to be a particularly good time when when the nights are already starting to draw in i think and you've already got a lot of um dispirited voters on the conservative side i think that's going to be the sort of thing that they are going to try and in some form take into into account so i think you're kind of left with september which the cop party conferences all of that sort of stuff kind of happening around then makes it very unlikely and then you're into august and i can see there being maybe something around august sort of time i could think they could just kind of just abandon the recess completely because what's the point anyway? Well, hang on. So uh, we can't have an election because we can't possibly have a general election while Whamageddon is going on. Yeah, that would be too much. But we can have one in the middle of the summer holidays. Yep. Never going to happen. Not <laughs> not an actual chance in hell that that happens, unless somehow there's a confidence vote. It's not going to happen. Well, uh, this is I, the thing. Though. I, I don't think there is a good time for them at all for uh, for out all of this. Actually, no. The best time for it is May. That is actually the good time for it, but apparently that's not going to happen. Although I've ended up randomly, I've ended up speaking to a, a multiple um, civil servants who none of which are connected to each other in any way. They don't know each other, and they've all said that they're still working on a notion of like May being the time period. I, I, if, if we're not going May, I can just I, I can easily see Sunak trying to do something daft like that. I, I just I can't because. I mean, I agree with you. I think May would be the most sensible place. Like, if you are approaching this relatively dispassionately and saying, you know, you avoid another summer of dinghies appearing on the south coast, you um, hope, you know, you avoid a load of headlines around bluntly a massacre of conservative councillors, which I think is likely to happen if if they go into May without an ele- general election. I do think that is the case, but I think two things. One, I think that Sunak wants the two years in a job sort of milestone um you know he he i think feels that he lost the whole first year to dealing with Liz Truss i think one thing i would be very clear i think is that i don't think Rishi Sunak has decided when the election is i don't i don't think he's a gambler i think he's not really decided yet and he's going to go what if some, i think something oh no, something might turn up something might turn up something might turn up because the entire world is assuming that he's going to lose um, and I think you know that includes him in a lot of ways. And I think he's just going to keep on and on, hoping that something will turn up. There's always a temptation to keep going long on when when that's the option. I think I agree with both of you that it would make sense to have it in May. And I feel like, given the last election was December 2019, if we'd had a relatively normal parliament, and it really hasn't been a normal parliament, um, or uh, more on that, see our last 
200 episodes. I think, I guess you assume May 24 is when you want to, to do it. Or maybe you uh, you do a bit like John Major did, I think, in 92, didn't he? Which is you maybe do it a couple months after local elections if local elections are fine. Um, but I think the reason it's not going to happen in May is partly we're going to have a complete psychodrama with the Tories over the Rwanda bill, uh, where you're going to have the One Nation going, we will absolutely die in a ditch to abstain on this bill and not try and pass any of our amendments. And then the five different star chains on the right are going to just spend the next three or four weeks talking about how terrible the government is. It's not going to help the Tories in the polls because the two main issues are the economy and cost of living and NHS. And rather than talk about that, the Tories are going to spend three weeks talking about immigration, which already an interesting tortoise poll with John, uh, podcast with John Curtis and not the name, Kate Wolf, I think. Um, we're saying that the the polling suggests that the Tories in Britain are the least trusted government in Europe on the issue of immigration. Why they are then spending another month trying to talk about small boats, why they talked about small boats over Christmas, why they started the New Year message talking about small boats when they could be talking about the economy makes no sense. But again, I guess we're going to talk about the disjointed Tory strategy here. You've got that that issue is going to go on. There's a couple of by-elections which are going to happen, aren't there? So Wellingborough is going to happen. Blackpool South is almost certainly going to happen. Chris Skidmore's seat, and I've forgotten the name of that seat. Kingswood. Kingswood. Kingswood, thank you. I guess it depends how well they go. I'm going to assume not very well. I mean, it's possible that the Tories might hold all of them and that there is the Rwanda bill passes and there's enough economic upturn after an early March budget to allow a May election to be called. But in terms of percentages, I reckon that's a 5 or 10% chance, if that. Um, yeah, I think Blackpool South, classic Red Wall seat, not a huge majority. I think that's very likely to, to flip back to Labour. I think Wellingborough is a bit more of a stretch. Um, but after Midbeds and Tamworth, can you really rule it out? And Kingswood, I think the voters of Kingswood are going to be really, really annoyed at the Conservative Party. They're, you know, they're, they're having to go to the polls for a seat that's about to get scrapped. I just don't see it happening in May. It depends how the local elections go, because I suppose there's two probably big contests, aren't there, really? So there's all there's lots of council elections, but there is there's the West Midlands mayoral election, an obscure Birmingham reference there. Uh, sorry. West the West Midlands Combined Authority, not in Birmingham. And also the Tees Valley mayoral election, isn't there? I think. So I suppose if the Tories don't hold either of them or hold one of them or hold both, then maybe that gives Sunak a bit more optimism to maybe do an election in soonish. It's similar to I I think to what when we're going to talk about possible hung parliament scenarios, is at the moment. The expectation management is so drastic for the Tories, especially given that these local elections last happened at the height of the Johnson bounce in 2021. And so given where the Tories were, given where Labour were, given where both parties are now, you can see that they should, you'd think, unless lots of things change, be absolutely dire. And therefore, you can't really see an election happening in the summer. But... So you've got, again, 5 10% chance maybe it happens in summer. I just don't see there being an election in August because MPs will need a break. I think what will happen in July and August is there'll be... And the second is, I think actually things are going to get so much worse. 
I think the pressure's going to keep ramping up, the stuff on immigration, the Rwanda bill, because the stupid thing is, he, he's managed to pick a fight or an issue that is like a tiny fraction of immigration issues. The, the, the people who turn up um, on the shore in, in small boats are very, very visible, and I guess that's the key, but it's a tiny fraction of the illegal immigration into this country because the vast majority of illegal immigration in this country is people who overstay their visas. It's people who arrived perfectly legally and just didn't leave when their visa ran out. And the other thing is that it doesn't, you know, it's not a push factor. You know, my home has been leveled with my wife and children underneath piles of rubble caused by, you know, bombing, barrel bombing in Syria. I've walked across the entire continent of Europe to try and get a better life, but they might send me off to Rwanda instead of instead of back to Syria where I'm wanted by death squads. I mean, you know, it's not actually a, a deterrent. What you need to do if you want to deal with that effectively is, is similar to what we've done with Belgium, because... You know, the, the, these boats aren't leaving from the Belgian coast, which is just as close. And the reason is because there's much closer cooperation between the British and Belgian police. You want to be talking to the French police, finding out where the boats are, where are the meeting points, where's the money going that these smugglers are getting. You know, it's good old-fashioned police work um, and the slashing of police budgets by Osborne and others. And yes, they're now bringing more coppers in. But what they've done is got rid of all the experienced old hands who knew what they were doing, replaced them with a bunch of brand new rookies and then gone, why isn't this working? You know, so it, it, they're basically doing gimmicks to avoid having to have the difficult conversations with the French that they've trashed over Brexit. It's a very small minority of the legal illegal migration issue. And, you know, what seems to be exercising a lot of Tory members, if you look at the stuff around the social care work visas and not being able to bring dependents in, is actually legal immigration. Um, and I'm not surprised that nobody's trusting the Tories on it because the whole, you know, Brexit was supposed to fix all of this. The whole idea was that we would, you know, have control of our borders and we wouldn't have free movement of people from from across Europe anymore. And in fact, you know, it turns out that if you want a functioning economy, you still need immigration when you have an aging population. And we've traded free movement of people from Europe to much higher immigration from the rest of the world. And that wasn't the deal that was that people thought they were voting for in 2016. Um, and nobody was honest with them at the time, you know, that this kind of cakeism strategy from Boris Johnson. Um, and, and, you know, what you really, really need to, to sort this out is, you know, functioning home office where you're not taking three and a half years to decide on asylum claims and paying for all of the costs of um, keeping and feeding um, the, the, the asylum seekers in horrific conditions for that long, deal with it in six months and either they stay or they go back to their country of origin. And, you know, that's your big, your big thing is you need to have a functioning, sensible home office. And we've kept putting in people who are deliberately disruptive into that role internal party reasons for the conservatives and then you know pretty patel suella braverman and now it just it doesn't function that's a really good i think explanation of what the problem is but i think it's also the failure of the government over immigration and say the failure and the post office and the horizon scandal so i'm, I'm guessing when we talk about what the outcome of the election might be we'll talk about any external events might happen but the fact that you've got that massive scandal. I think one of the reasons that resonates as well as the 
the drama as well as the horrific miscarriage of justice, but it all feeds into this narrative of a Britain that just doesn't seem to work anymore and where a government is unable to do the basic things that the government should be doing. I think it's a Britain that doesn't work anymore and a Britain where the people at the top are completely distanced from the people on the front lines of every organisation, you know, where, you know, the, the post office bosses can ignore this problem for so long, can allow hundreds of people to get their lives absolutely turned upside down and ruined, sent to prison under false, um, you know, false reasons. Um, some of them committed suicide. I mean, you know, bluntly, there are people at the top of the Home Office and, and in Fujitsu who ought to be in prison over this. And they're going to get away scot-free. Oh, no, I've had to hand back my gong. The, the lack of accountability in the elites. And I think that's one of the big things that is really causing um, a lot of anger at the government. And that is being found out. And the public is sick of it and rightly turning against it. Well, and Partygate being an emblematic example. And then the mis- and then the well, and the mini budget is 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 for yeah again massive incompetent mismanagement. So to come back to the point, Steve, that you mentioned about three or four days ago now about is thing are things going to get worse for the Conservatives? I suppose that logic is why actually Dan- January twenty twenty five I think is a genuinely feasible election day. I would say 50-60 percent chance of elections November. I would say probably a twenty percent chance it's before that, and probably. A twenty or thirty percent chance that it's in January. I forget yeah. if those percentages quite add up to a hundred. I would just like to say, if that is the case, there is a very real chance that there is a, the election would be called on my birthday. What a present wow. that would be! Yeah, <laughs> let's not do that. I don't want to spend my birthday on poll uh, polling day. <laughs> I want to spend the evening and morning of your birthday drinking and extraordinary amount of alcohol watching the the camp though so that yeah. could that could be the best birthday ever assumption that you won't be in the count as an agent <laughs> i will absolutely not be going to the count <laughs> i'm going to be drinking alcohol at home or, or, unless i suppose i decide that i really need to wipe the memory of being in wolverhampton for the count on poem in 2019 out of my mind which could I'm be Stoke, mate. So you know, <laughs> touche. We're all sort of in a similar place, apart apart from I love I love the August idea, but I don't love it. But it's I'm, not going to happen. I, I, no, no. Like honestly, I just wanted to throw something out that was potentially different to everybody else. Like yeah, it's I love, like... That, I love that we've gone with the same reasoning to come up with August, November, and January as the times. <laughs> what results going to happen? Uh, well, what what the actual result will be? Yeah. Um, so I think we're probably going to be looking at a. You see, I'm kind of torn on uh, torn on this between my natural pessimism, because um, <laughs> um, there, there is a like I was looking at some polling predictions this far out from an election versus like what the actual seats were, and in pretty much all of those instances, like the the where where. Um, the Tories were in, you know, in power, and Labour were out polling them. Like the Tories did gain some ground back, and I think that is a a sensible enough position to kind of have. So my my gut instinct is where we're not going to be seeing. So like I've I've literally just got electoral calculus open open here just so just to give you the kind of the numbers of where things are meant to be right now. 
Um, and that they're saying um, like Labour on 412, the Tories on 157. I don't think that's fully feasible. I think we're probably going to be looking about maybe 350, 200, that sort of figure. I think actually so- it is quite feasible the Tories could get wiped out. I don't know if I go as far as to predict it officially, partly because if I did and then was wrong, that Morgan McSweeney would hound me to the ends of the earth. It's a weird one, isn't it? Where we've we've literally just spent about 25 minutes talking about how terrible it could go for the Conservatives. But then I think there is a reluctance to say, and therefore they'll still get about 250 seats. And I don't know. I think there's an absolute... There is... A, a good possibility they get completely destroyed. There's a potential for a kind of Canada. Is it, was it ninety three their election where they they got wiped out? But I don't. I think that's possible. I don't think it's likely. I think if you look at change elections, so I'm thinking ninety seven, seventy nine, uh, Wilson's elections, polling was always overstated. So I think Labour's true advantage, if you like, is not the kind of 18-20% lead that we've been seeing, but somewhere between 4 and 14%, I think. Um, I think probably nearer the higher end of that. And I, and I think when I put them through electoral calculus, 4% lead is a hung parliament, 14% lead is an 88-seat Labour majority. Um, my guess, I reckon, probably around a 10% lead when all is said and done. Uh, which would be a Labour majority of 40 seats. That's kind of where I'm landing. Now, some of this is going to depend on how well reform do. One of the things that's interesting, you know, Blair had a huge amount of enthusiasm for him as well as antipathy to the Tories before 97. But actually, if you look at other change elections, Thatcher in 79 and Wilson in, in the 60s, they're more, they are more or less where Keir is, where it's kind of, uh, we're not hugely enthusiastic about the opposition, but we're going to give them a go because we hate the current not so much. And then it was after they got into office that they really built that enthusiasm, both in in you know in both the cases of Thatcher and, and Wilson. And I can see a similar scenario to that playing out, actually. As I said earlier, when Steve was doing his predictions and I decided to interrupt him, I do think a wipeout is a possibility. Like so Rob Ford, who's an academic who's really good and wrote Brexit Land, which I have praised on the podcast, he wrote an interesting article this week about the four ways in which there could be a big Labour majority. So you've got the return of Nigel Farage, which we've talked about at length. I don't think we should talk about Nigel Farage much again. You've got the rise of Scottish Labour. And if Scottish Labour do better, then you have more chance of uh, getting a nine-point Labour lead maybe is enough to get a majority, which it probably isn't uh, without Scottish seats. You've got anti-Tory tactical voting from Greens and Lib Dems, which I do think will be an issue. Potentially anti-Tory voting from the SNP voters as well. I don't think you can rule that out, actually. Well, no, and actually what that means for Scottish Labour in the future, if you end up with... Because uh, whenever we talk about tactical voting on the podcast, we've generally talked about people voting along pro- and anti-independence lines. But if Scottish Labour ends up with some pro-independence people voting tactically against the Tories, that suddenly makes their voting coalition very much more difficult and interesting um it is because i was gonna say that one of the things that you've seen or i've had scottish friends telling me is that a lot of the smp voters have a foregone conclusion that the conservatives are going to win and therefore vote smp because they see them as protecting scotland's interests 
So if you don't have that foregone conclusion that the Conservatives are going to win, that there is a possibility to replace them as the national government, but not if you vote SNP, I think there is a certain group, you know, I really would hesitate to guess a percentage, but there's a certain group of SNP voters that will tactically switch. Uh, well, on, on that, I had just happened to uh, have pulled up on Electoral Calculus uh, some polling that they did on tactical voting. Um, you know, it tops out on the highest end as a Green Party with 60% of their vote basically being prepared to to vote tactically. Um, the lowest end of it is actually con- the Conservatives with only 15%, and it's 28% for the Nationalist Party. So SNP and Plaid Cymru, they've been like lumped together for the purposes of this poll. But if that holds true, you can expect around about almost a third of uh, the SNP's vote to be prepared to vote tactically in some form. Yeah. It's almost like the mirror image of 2015, isn't it? Where you had the uh, Edmund Abandoned Ike Salmon's pocket was encouraging people to vote Tory in southern England. It's like the reverse effect happening up in Scotland of people voting anti-Tory to kick out the Tory government. The fourth reason Rob Ford talks about is Labour doing better in battleground seats and beating the Tories there, which I suppose tactical voting is part of that. Part of that is obviously the election campaign and about money uh, and about campaign strategy. And at the moment, as we have talked about, it feels like Rishi Sunak doesn't really have a campaign strategy. I feel like every time we've talked about it, so we talked about it before Christmas, Steve, and uh, we were criticising him for um, saying that he was trying to be the change candidate and then brought back David Cameron. And then he's changed again and now he's trying to go with a continuity candidate and stick to the plan, which is a problem when no one thinks you can carry out your plan and everyone thinks you have a bad plan and everyone thinks you have no plan so i don't i don't I, I, madness go on I, do you... I don't know if he has no plan or if he has seven plans but he seems to have resorted to john major's 97 election plan which may not be the best most inspiring example from a conservative perspective i would say there's probably about a 30 percent chance for complete tory wipeout of 200 150 seats but and it's hard because I, I sort of there's a there's the actual calculus model there's also there's a sort of oxford model which tries to build in tactical voting but essentially i reckon you're going to end up in a city so at the moment i think labor has about a 20 point lead and i think that lead will narrow i've assumed there'll be about a nine point labor lead so if you pop in tories 31 labor 40 lib them 14 slightly up on where they are in the polls at the moment and hello mark by the way Reform and Greens on about nine and nine for reform, five for Greens, which is about where they are in the polling at the moment. And you can, depending on tactical voting, you, but you're sort of anywhere between 310 and 360 for Labour. But I'd say a, a Labour majority of about 30 to 50 feels about right. Because actually, like 350, you're, is, is Labour gaining 150 seats? So yeah. it doesn't sound like a massive majority, but actually, like, it would yeah. be an absurd result when yeah. you think about where we were five years ago yeah and i think that's that's the, the 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 thing that i think it's very easy to forget and i know i i end up in that kind of that kind of headspace as well is you look at where where we are and how bad the tories are doing and you go oh, it must be an absolutely stonking labor majority that comes to the back of this but actually because of how poorly the last set of uh a general election results were for Labour, we're starting from an incredibly low base. So for us to be able to gain like 150 odd seats or whatever, that, uh, whatever number it is, is, is 
bloody impressive in in in, in and of itself. Mm. Normally, this is the sort of um, result where it takes you two to three cycles to get back to to where you were potentially, and we've done it even in one. Um, well, so, not yet. Well, well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> in theory, assuming these sorts of predictions are are accurate, we are we're saying we'll the labor will do it in in a single cycle. I think there's probably a three to five percent chance the Tories have the most seats. There's probably a sixty percent chance of a Labour majority and about a thirty percent chance of there being a sort of Labour the largest party in the hung parliament. And I suppose it's interesting to try. So we've talked a lot about doom scenarios for the Tories. It most maybe interesting to speculate a little bit on what might cause the pulse to narrow. So there could be some good economic news potentially. The an interesting nugget in the Tim Shipman article. I think again, um, I think we said Ball's point this out on political currency, which is how I came across it. Is that when the March the 6th budget date was announced, um, the speculation became, oh, May election. In the Tim Shipman article in the Sunday Times that followed, they, there was a source that said, actually, the reason for the early budget date is to try and have a second fiscal event happening in June, which, again, are you, is that a potential, a second bite at the tax-cutting cherry? That's unlikely to work, given that actually we've talked a lot about 1997 and actually the economy was doing so much better in 1997 than it was now. Um, it's just that Black Wednesday meant the government had lost its economic credibility. And you know the point I'm now going to make, listeners, about the money budget. Um, but also it does feel there's a lot of global shocks at the moment and there could be some global instability that maybe helps, it causes the country to rally around the flag. But again, I find that unlikely. And the other thing is, there is going to be a really heavy, negative, nasty attack on Keir Starmer personally, on Labour's platform. And it's perfectly possible that all the mud flinging will affect Labour's poll lead. Um, and something happens, you know, there's a sort of tax bombshell thing or some gaff or events could happen. At the moment, it's really hard to know what those events are because so I read over Christmas David Kinnison's book on the 1964 election, and I think every 20 minutes was popping stories from it in the WhatsApp um, <laughs> that we're on because it's an amazing book. And on the surface, it feels quite similar because you've got 13 failed years of Tory government. You've got a prime minister who was seen as rich as out of touch. So there's a wonderful story on the by-election where Douglas Home is campaigning. He is asked, are you going to buy a house in the constituency and live here if you win? And he says... No, I've got too many other houses already. And you can sort of see Rishi Sunak saying something similar. Um, and there the polls massively narrow and, you know, a 15, 20 point Labour lead becomes a Labour majority of only three. But back then you've got never had it so good, massive economic growth, a an electorate that is optimistic about the economy and thinks that things are going better. And actually you've probably got enough... Like the, it's the early 60s, so it's a kind of interesting... You know, if, if Douglas Hume had won that election, we wouldn't have said, ooh, Wilson, modern technology, you know, the 60s. We'd have said, actually, this is still a Britain that's quite conservative. It's quite deferential. It respects old-fashioned aristocratic figures like Douglas Home, and you could completely see that playing out in a way that Sunak just will not connect, I don't think, on a campaign trail. He's not really a good campaigning politician in that way. And again, people talk about 1992, but Major had been able to show change with the poll tax and change that policy in a way that Sunak needs to differentiate from Johnston Trust, but for internal 
party management reasons cannot do. And in 2015, we everyone thought there'd be a hung parliament or a Labour majority, but the fundamental polling suggested that the Tories were more trusted on the economy and that Cameron was more trusted, or it was seen as a better prominence than their billamand. And those fundamental polling questions translated into a polling. But at the moment, all the fundamental questions point towards Labour. And it's really hard to see what would change that other than a massive external event, which you can't really foresee. I think we've had some massive external events um, which haven't shifted the dial. You know, Russia invading Ukraine, the October 7th attacks in, in Israel and then the Netanyahu government's response. Um, and I think we're actually also going to have the, the economics are actually going to be more problematic as well than they, even they are now, because, you know, a large part of the world's shipping is just being rerouted around the entire continent of Africa because of the attacks by Houthi rebels. So that's going to lead to delays in supply chains. It's going to lead to increased costs because of the extra costs of shipping. A lot of the world's oil and, and liquid natural liquefied natural gas comes through that route. So that's going to potentially add costs to oil, and we know how that feeds through the rest of the economy. Yes, we're seeing some in, some dropping mortgage rates, but we're seeing them drop from a really high level comparatively to a still high level um, and anybody coming off a mortgage and remortgaging, you know, okay, it's five and a half percent, not 6%, but I was paying one and a half percent or 2%, you know, it's still a massive, massive jump. Um, you know, we remortgaged recently, no more than half our salaries go on our mortgage. And that is, you know, that is going to affect a lot of people between now and polling day, the more they, they drag polling day out. So even if the headline figures are improving, the lag time before people actually feel that in their pocket means that actually, I think at this stage, an, in an improving economy doesn't help Sunak because it doesn't feel like it's improving and nobody actually looks at GDP figures and go, oh, well, you know, my mortgage is now more than half my, my combined income as a family, but, you know, the GDP is, has grown back, so I best stick with the government. Like, no, nobody in real life thinks that. So I think, you know, I, I don't see what could change to shift the dial back um, all this in a, in a significant way. Yeah, and all this parliament has been about external shocks, hasn't it? So you think about 2010, the election after the crash, where I suppose Gordon Brown was able to go into that election with a good enough story to tell about his action bringing leaders together in response to the economic crisis combined with, I think about that sort of final rally where um, I'm guessing every Labour member has watched it about, you know, the reading off all the Labour policies that were done in those 13 years. You know, there was a story to tell about progress the Labour government had done that time. It's really hard to know. There's a potential narrative that Sinat could try and say, which is, we had massive economic shock of COVID. We put in the furlough scheme, saved the economy. We need to finish the job. Don't let Labour ruin it. The problem is they can't really use that because a lot of the Tory party doesn't really agree with that narrative anyway. If you're Rishi Sunak and you're going to try and mirror that speech, what Tory achievements do you put in from the last 14 years? Got Brexit done? Well, even the Brexiteers are saying that the Brexit deal and the way it was done was bloody awful. You know, equal marriage, but that had to pass with Labour votes. I suppose if you're going from a purely conservative point of view, and I'm not talking about the morality of these policies, you could you talk about equal marriage, you, universal credit, 
You could talk about record low employment. You could talk about some of the like free schools and school reforms that Michael Gove put in place. I don't think any of those is as headline grabbing as the national minimum wage. Uh, no. Sure start centres. And, and I think I genuinely struggle to see what the big achievements for the Conservatives of the last 13 years would be, even from their own perspective. Immigration is at record highs. The government doesn't function. Crime is spiked massively. The economy got thrown down the toilet. Interest rates are at 6%. I mean, even by their own standards, their preferred issues, it's it's 14 years of object failure and, and very little up. To shout about. I, I go back to the book on the 64 election, which has a, a sort of cleric going around Wales and uh, a finding just outside Cardiff, I think. There's a sort of rundown village. He sees a, a kind of meth's den, all this kind of industrial decay and waste. And you can just see a Tory poster that says, don't let Labour ruin it. And I thought that is a perfect illustration of what the Conservative election campaign is going to be. Because you're right. I mean, maybe the thing that would stop a complete Tory wipeout, because I, I realised we were trying to look for reasons to be optimistic for the Tories and randomly, once again, found reasons that they really shouldn't be very optimistic at all. That brings us quite nicely onto the question Steve wanted us to, to talk about, about potential Portillo movements, big names we thought might lose their seats, which is hampered slightly by the fact that 908 Conservative MPs are stepping down this election rather than trying to lose their seats in an election. Um, but I think Jeremy Hunt is possibly one. I, I'm just going through like my electoral calculus prediction and looking at the... Go on then, LJ. So I have two. So I, if we go with... I think there's a few big-name Tories who are, are at risk. Graham Brady would be if he wasn't standing down. I think Tobias Elwood potentially in Ashfield, uh, sorry, in Bournemouth East, if we get a bit higher, Ian Duncan Smith even, and potentially Jacob Rees Mogg if we really, you know, do overperform. If, I, if Labour has a 14% lead, all of those were falling. Um, but also, I note that none of those are actually in the cabinet at the moment. So, my, my two cabinet that I think are at risk and I think are also could be Portilla moments even if it's more of the 40 seat than the 88 seat one is Penny Morden Portsmouth North that's got some very interesting ramifications in that she is probably the moderate wing of the Conservatives best shot at the leadership after the next election assuming that the Tories lose it Who's going to stand up and fight LJ if Penny Morton isn't in the House of Commons? It's it's a tragedy for British conservatism. It, it really is. Yeah, um, should have left. You know, who's who's going to carry the swords? But I think the other one that's um, actually quite a bit of risk, um, and it's it is someone I think is at risk to the Lib Dems, is Alex Chalk in Cheltenham, particularly if there is a level of tactical voting. Yeah, that's a good shout. I, I, I'm not sure how many I have to. Add, other than I'm just going through my electoral calculus list of those that change hands. Greg Hands actually apparently would lose his seat on these figures, which would be very, very amusing. Theresa Villiers, who again, like Ian Duncan Smith, I think is at risk and not in the cabinet. Steve Baker in Wickham as well, I would say. Mm. Um, and Emma Reynolds, I think, is Labour candidate there. Yes. So, yep. talking of avenging defeat in Wolverhampton North East. <laughs> um, very much a friend of the podcast, Emma. So, um, you, yeah, you know which cat you'll be at, Corey. <laughs> Do you have any of this, Steve? 
No, I mean, I think to to be honest, the two that I was kind of thinking about one, I'd say in in cabinet is is Steve Baker, um, just because Wickham is. I mean, it, it it just feels wild to me that we're talking about Wickham going going red. But I've got family from 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 that part of the world, and it just just does not in my mind feel like the sort of place that that should ever would ever be be Labour. Um, but my my thing, and I, I know he technically doesn't uh, count, he's not in cabinet, so arguably you could say it, it isn't a Portillo moment or whatever. But I do, I do think Rory Smog is the 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 one that the, the it's his loss would be the one which would get the most traction in terms of people paying attention to it. So in uh, so if you, so if we class a Portillo moment as by that's big news um it, rather than it's a member of the cabinet who's who's lost their seat or whatever then mog i think is actually the one because just the seat itself should be true blue tory and yet it's in play potentially depending on how the polls actually go on the day um and he's just such an emblematic politician for this like generation of conservative MPs that his being booted from parliament would be a major uh, story in and of it in and of itself even though he himself isn't particularly important other than as being a talking head that gets brought in these days for a certain type of Tory view but the fact that he is so recognisable and pretty much everybody in the country will at least know the name if not necessarily be able to put a name a face to it they will be able to it would be very very significant for him to lose his seat i think i think you're right i think in a world where jacob reese moggs lost his seat i think you know penny Morden has as well but i think what you'll find is that the media will obsess over jacob reese mogg losing her seat losing his seat sorry and penny Morden losing her seat will actually be considerably more impactful on politics moving forward um, oh, yeah. Actually, it's an interesting point, Steve, you make about Portillo moments in that the reason why it was Michael Portillo, he was seen as such a hated figure. It's hard to remember now that he's a cuddly person who wears outrageous blazers and makes documentaries about trains, but was seen as a really hateful figure and sort of symptomatic of everything that was wrong with the major government. And I think Reese Mogg does have that cachet, if you like, of being the most notorious the notorious JRM, maybe. And that would make it more of a Portillo moment, I think. And, you know, the fact that, is it was it Altrincham, I think, and Sale that Rishi Sunak was campaigning in this week? So, again, you talk about Wickham, and I think that's partly a demographic shift, isn't it? It's people a bit like Croydon becoming more Labour because people can't afford to live in London and sort of going out to the sort of out, outskirts. But you look, I think it was Altrincham and Thinking Sale that Rishi Sunak was out campaigning in this week. Yeah, which, which is Graham Brady's you know, That is, and, that, uh, and that's poshest bit of Manchester you know that is shouldn't be Tory uh, it shouldn't be Labour you know you shouldn't need the Prime Minister to campaign there if the polls stay where they currently are which I know none of us expect to happen but I think Windsor goes red I mean if you really really want to see a change in times when when the royal family has a Labour MP that's a that's a bit of a shift um which I okay I don't think is going to happen but But like there's another potential like figure um, that could be uh, much celebrated if he were to lose a seat. I don't necessarily know how, to what extent this would be likely um, with, with where the polling is at and everything, given uh, his uh, main opponent last time round was the Lib Dems. 
But Gove, Gove could be a really interesting one, potentially. Like tactical voting and just the, the, the Tory base just doesn't turn out. That could be an interesting one. I think for Gove to win, I think the Lib Dems need to perform and so do reform. Shall we talk about what might happen if there's a hung parliament? I think there is a potential for a hung parliament. I don't think it's likely, but if some big external shock happens, Labour just misses out. I think we're all fairly certain that Labour will be the biggest party, but I think that's possible. And then there's a huge amount of uncertainty in that. You know, does Sunak stay on in that scenario? Gordon Brown couldn't. Does Sunak? I don't think so. Does Starmer stay on? Again, big question mark there. I think it throws a huge amount of... I think it throws everything into the works. I think it really is the banter timeline, as as we say. Um, again, I don't think this is a likely scenario, but I think it is possible. I could see a situation where Labour's the largest party, we form a minority government with Lib Dem support on confidence issues, and then within sort of six to 12 months, there's a second election. Yeah, I, I think if you end up in a like a, a hung parliament situation i do think lib dem confidence and supply is going to be the 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 most likely outcome there's potentially something that could maybe be done with the smp depending on what the numbers are looking uh, and end up being in that sort of circumstance so that's something to look at but i'm not necessarily sure it's that likely either in terms of the results or in terms of like how people would behave were that to happen i do not want to see anna sour's reaction if there is some sort of arrangement with the SNP. I mm-hmm. think Scottish Labour would go, what are you doing? There is a commitment that there won't be a second referendum from, from Starmer, and I think that's genuine and serious because, you know, as you say, I think it, the damage it does to the Labour Party in Scotland is incalculable, never mind the damage it does to the United Kingdom. I think in that scenario, actually, um, the the Labour Party goes, do you know what? Why don't you try and put the Tories in SNP and see how that plays in Scotland um, and almost dare them say, you know, we're going to be on a minority government. And if you bring this down, you can go and answer to the to the voters. So I think a hung parliament is a pretty real possibility. So I think I said earlier, I think the possibility of it is about 30 odd percent ish just because of the mountain that Labour has to climb. And I think the politics of it will be really interesting because actually if Labour was to gain 100 seats, on 2019, that would put them on around 300, which again, in the context of where the Labour Party was, would be an astonishingly good result, but also would leave Labour about 25, 30 seats short of a working majority. Where is the expectation management game in that position? Now, I think Labour's in a pretty good job at not being complacent, not taking any of this for granted, um, unlike us on the podcast. But is that seen as a massive blow in that, how the hell did we manage to lose this election? Or is it seen as, well, actually, we can have a minority government now? And um, so there's an interesting political currency over Christmas where they had Tanya Alexander talking about uh, the sort of coalition negotiations in 2010. Uh, worth listening to because Ed Balls is um, <laughs> really, really pissed off with Tanya Alexander. It's very amusing to listen to. But it's interesting that one of the things that Danny Alexander says in that is that he doesn't think that Ed Davey would want to enter a, a formal coalition. It would be more confidence and supply, uh, which I, I think is is interesting. I've I've sort of assumed that the Lib Dems will end up on about 20 or 30 MPs because I think there's a the, the Lib Dems, I think, have a, a target of 
20 that they're looking at. And all of them are on the big labor list of unwinnable seats that they've just asked for selections for. Um, so I think it, it's not going to be a mid-Bedfordshire situation or a Wimbledon 2019 situation. I think there will be a sort of non-aggression pact in at least those 20 seats. And so you can see a situation where actually if uh, if Labour gets about 300 seats and there's about 25 to 30 Lib Dem seats, given where you are with Sinn Féin, given you might have a couple of Green MPs as well, that's probably enough through a confidence and supply arrangement for the short term. But what it does to the politics of of the Labour Party, which obviously is you know what anyone really cares about. I'm not convinced there will be a couple of Green MPs, actually. I'm not convinced they're going to break through uh, just on tactical voting levels anywhere other than Brighton Pavilions. And I'm also not convinced that Caroline Lucas's vote transfers en masse to the next Green candidate. Um, I think they have picked her. I think it's the the lady who's the leader for the Greens, and I can't remember her name. Paula Dennett. Um, because okay. I'm slightly more bullish than you, Corey, about the possibility of own parliament. I don't think it's likely. I think it's it's just a measure of how far Labour's got to climb to get an overall majority. I feel like we've been talking for a very, very long time, so we should probably just finish with turnout. What do you think turnout will be, Steve? Uh, I'm imagining pretty similar to the last couple of elections. I can't imagine it shooting up particularly. Um, I mean, from looking at the figures, I think there was a drop off from like seven. I think it was like seventy to seventy five percent or whatever, and then it drops off in the early two thousands or thereabouts to like the mid to high sixties. I'm imagining something like sixty five percent, maybe, because I'm assuming fewer Tories turn out. Like the anti Tory vote will be motivated almost regardless. Um, but there's there's probably just enough of a, 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 a enough of a dampener on the Tories, almost regardless of when when the election is is actually held, to drop that down a, a couple more percent from where we were last time, which I think was like sixty seven or something like that. So sixty-seven point three. Yeah. So let, let, let's say sixty-five just for a nice round number. If I, uh, so I, I think I'm in a pretty similar place. I think anywhere between that sixty-three and sixty-eight percent. And 65 feels about right, given, as I've said in a couple of other podcasts, a lot of those undecided voters, I don't think will vote because they are disillusioned Tories who don't know what to do. Yeah, I think, I mean, 2010 was 65.1, 2015-66.2, 2017-68.8. And I think whichever side of the Brexit debate you were on was was motivating people to vote in that election, 67.3, again, similar. I think there will also be a cohort of people that were Labour drifted away in the 2000s, went Tory over Brexit, and now feel betrayed by them as well and and go back to not voting. So I think perhaps slightly higher, 66 67%. Does anyone have any final thoughts or any bonus predictions for our listeners who've uh, stayed with us this long? I have a prediction, which is if Michael Gove does somehow end up losing his seat, he will be the uh, Tory MP that begins the journey from from conservative MMP to mildly tolerated slash interesting uh, television uh, host. Okay. I think he's going your, straight to the podcasts. Your bonus then, what subject would Michael Gove do for me documentaries about? Oh, it, it would be something historically historical, I think. Oh, I actually no, it'll be like things like the Industrial Revolution, I reckon. It'll be like that kind of technology, but historical. I think he ends up on the podcasts. I, I, you know, if you've got 
Rory Stewart and Alistair Campbell, and then you've got Ed Balls and George Osborne. I think the interesting question is which Labour figure ends up being Michael Gove's opposite number on his new podcast series? And can we strip them of their membership if they do decide to do that? Um, Can't believe I'm Googling Shadow Education. (laughs) What a ridiculous life this is. So education was Andy Burnham, then Stephen Twigg, then Tristram Hunt. Okay, well, that was okay. Industrial Revolution, that would work, wouldn't it? Michael Gove and Tristram Hunt. Yeah, yeah, Tristram Hunt. On famous industrialists. The rest is industry. does have a podcast. Because he's he's the director of the Victorian Albert now, isn't he? He is. Oh, oh, this is, Um, yeah, no, it's lining up. It's lining up too much. Oh, no, I don't like this. Let's let's move on. I don't like this. Can you remember when he was in the future? Anyone else got any other bonus episodes (laughs) now that we've broken Steve with his? (laughs) I think we're good. Thank you so much for listening to us try and make sense of what's going to be, I think, a pretty bonkers year, actually. Um, I feel like every year since we've been doing this about eight years ago now has been pretty eventful and I think this one will be as well and we are uh, over the next few episodes we're going to try and talk about the UK election in a global context because as you might have heard there are so many elections going on this year Uh, it's a big election fest so we're going to talk about some of the trends in Though in, in sort of in across the world and how they might play out in Britain as well, James Cram designer logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Pretty Good Times. On Twitter, formerly known as X, I'm at Paperback Rioter. Steve, I'm at Acoustic Radical, and LJ. I'm at LJD Labour. Happy plotting. <laughs> <laughs>